The Women in Media podcast is proudly sponsored by Organic Traditions for spring 2024. Stay tuned for a special deal during this episode. I'm Sarah Burke, and this is the Women in Media podcast. I'm joined by a woman who's literally been the face of Sportsnet since its inception in 1998. That's 24 years of features, event coverage, and reporting. You know you've been doing this long enough when I'm now interviewing the sons of hockey players that I used to, you know, I used to interview Ty Domi, now I interview Max Domi. And all the guys that I started out interviewing are now the coaches and the GMs and and management. She's currently their NHL reporter. Her interviews appear on Hockey Night in Canada, Scotiabank Wednesday Night Hockey, and The Big Picture with Chris Simpson. Welcome to the Women in Media podcast. I'm so honored you said yes. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciate it. A very foggy Thursday in Toronto. What's the day look like? First of all, it's a sad day since we've just gotten the news that Boreas Salming has passed. And, you know, I think everyone, every hockey fan, at least, you know, just two weeks ago, almost now, saw Boria for the first time and the effects of ALS on him. Um, And I just, I'm so grateful that he had the chance not only to see so many of his former teammates, Daryl Sittler, um, you know, Matt Sundin came in for it, Lanny McDonald, but got to hear the roar from the Maple Leafs fans, the crowd that loved him so much. So, but to see him that recently and now just to know he's gone is is incredibly sad so that's the sad part the fun part i'm looking forward to i'm prepping for an interview i'm going to be doing with mike greer the general manager of the san jose sharks who will be in town next wednesday to take on the maple leafs and his story an impressive one not only you know a former player over a thousand games in the nhl but the first black general manager in the NHL. So um, I really am looking forward to chatting with him. And that will be on The Big Picture next Wednesday. Very cool. So when I was reading about The Big Picture, this didn't really seem like something that Sportsnet put on you. It seemed like something you developed. Am I right there? Well, I will give credit where credit is due. It was, um, I mean, we were sitting there in the pandemic going, what are we going to do? What are we, how are we going to you know, fill our airwaves and how am I going to do interviews when you're not allowed to be in the same room with someone? So two of our producers, our amazing producers, uh, Jeremy McElhaney and Michael Attic, kind of came up with this idea, kind of pitched me on it, to be honest, and said, what do you think? I'm like, I am game. If it means that I can still talk to hockey players, let's do it. So, you know, we're now into the third season of doing it. And the nice thing too, and even kind of started last year, but this year in particular, it is nice to be able to sometimes be in the same room with the, like the, I did one a couple of weeks ago with John Tortorella, the head coach of the Philadelphia Flyers. And instead of it being Zoom in our studio, those are fun too, because it does allow you to sometimes get people um, that are a little more difficult to pin down from a scheduling standpoint. Very true. But to have the uh, availability to be in the same room with them, because you know it, it makes it so much easier when you can actually be face to face. So it's been fun to to at least have that segment that can you know include not only players, GMs, but just sort of personalities and people who love the game from all walks of life. So it's it's been a lot of fun. The pandemic forced us all to look at things a little <laughs> differently, right? So you pivot yeah. to figure out what you can do. Yeah, made us get comfortable with things that we were just like not expecting at exactly. all. Exactly. 
So going back to the beginning of your career, I want to backtrack a little bit here. Was it 98 that was like the beginning of, of you as a reporter? I know you went to, I was just reading you went to Western. I had no idea you grew up in London, Ontario. I was there for like a decade of my career in school. So I love that city. Did not realize that. Yeah. Born and raised in London, Ontario. And uh, yeah, I mean, I will say though, I kind of fell into this and I will say, if Sportsnet wasn't a brand new sports television network looking for, you know, kind of people from all walks of life, they just didn't want to steal everyone from TSN. That was the only other big, you know, sports network at the time. Um, you know, they took a chance on me because I certainly didn't have conventional training. I mean, I went to Western, but I didn't take sports broadcasting at Western. What did you take? Well, I got a general social science degree. So I took a little bit of everything. I kept thinking, okay, I'm going to find that one thing that I love and I'm going to major in it. But I kind of liked a little bit of everything. I mean, I did take journalism 20, but I put, I took business. I took psychology. I took anthropology. I took English. I kind of took a little bit of everything. And after graduating, moved to Toronto. But in the beginning, I worked in fashion. Um, I worked with Marilyn Brooks, a Canadian designer. I did modeling for a while, you know, did some commercials, did fashion shows, did lots of different things, but really started combining, um, you know, I guess professionally was doing more marketing and PR, worked with Roots doing that, worked on the 96 Toronto Olympic bid. Um, but then when I landed at the Hockey Hall of Fame as the marketing manager, that was the first time where sort of my, you know, whatever business acumen I had in the marketing and PR worlds to combine with my longtime love of the game of hockey. So it kind of came together, but still, you know, I, again, did not have the kind of uh, experience that I would say anybody needs to be able to get into this industry. But anyone in this industry knows there is not a straight line to get to where you, know, you and I <laughs> are, both are. Everyone has a story of how they found their way. And I read that you were the first ever in-game host for the Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, former in-game host for the London Knights here, and I've done some uh, World hey, Juniors. No so that's a fun gig, right? A great gig. And that came about so funny because at the Hall of Fame, our, um, our phone directory system at the time, if you called the Hockey Hall of Fame, it'd be my voice saying, welcome to the Hockey Hall of Fame. <laughs> we are open seven days a week. So Bob Stelic at the time was the head of marketing for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And of course, I got to know him dealing with the Leafs as, you know, in my position with the Hall of Fame. But I guess he called the hall enough that he was like, I really like her voice. She's got a good voice. So when it came time in 95 for the Leafs to hire an in-arena host, and they only did it because the Raptors came to town. And they knew that NBA in-game entertainment was a lot more than the Leafs were doing at that time. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll never forget him pitching me on, like, what do you think? We think we need this in-arena host. And and I'm, I'm thinking from a marketing standpoint, great idea, Bob, because then your sponsors will get a higher profile of, you know, what, what you're doing with them. Their promotions will be seen and heard. And he's like, great, I want you to do it. I'm like, what? I don't know how to do that. But, you know, you get thrown into it. You get a mic put in your hand and you're speaking live to, uh, you know, an arena of 18,000 people. And it started really my comfort level in what it's like to be live in front of a lot of people with a microphone in your hand. Interesting, because most people in news, they're, they're starting with like pre-recorded newscasts and things where there's not really a full audience. So, yeah, you really like got thrown right I in. Was definitely <laughs> thrown right into it. 
Do you remember anything not going as planned in the early days? Because like what we see of Christine Simpson now is so like perfect. I have to ask. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Well, I, I will actually share something. Um, any nerves that I would have had prior to my first game of doing that kind of went out the window because I'll never forget the, the night before I was doing the game, my house was broken into. My house was robbed. And so uh, like... I was so focused on, oh my God, and dealing with all of that, that the next day it was like, oh right, and I'm starting this gig with the Leafs. I wonder what it's going to be like. But you know when you're somewhat distracted by real life things, sometimes that is the best thing that happens to you because it makes you, oh, yeah. the nerves just went away. I'm like, okay, now I've filed the police report, we've done all of this, You know, hopefully my house is safe. Oh yeah, I'm going to go down to Maple Leaf Dark Gardens and do this gig. So it, it maybe in a weird way helped me figure, you know what, you don't sweat, sweat the small stuff. Interesting. Okay. And then tell me about like coming out of the in-game host position and becoming like a regular reporter. You didn't have that formal training. Who did you go to, to learn? Well, and it was interesting because I mean, obviously so many great staff in that first year at, um, in 1998, but like with me, I think a lot of people didn't always have the wealth of experience that others would have in the industry because give give Sportsnet credit. They, they did want to give people a shot at things. But I remember feeling like the first um, interviews that I would do, I remember thinking I knew what I would want to ask them. Again, I've grown up watching hockey my whole life. So for me, and obviously having brothers who played, I knew going into an interview the kind of questions that I would want to ask that player or that coach. But what I didn't really understand was the whole, you know, television side of it and how, you know, you need to look to the camera or look off to the camera or being in the edit suite when I would be, you know, with an editor trying to put together my story and writing my scripts. I mean, all the things you learn in broadcast journalism school, I had not learned. And so that first year, Wow, I was thrown into the deep end and it was, yeah, really learning on the job. It was on the job training and, and fortunately, you know, had a lot of editors. Uh, I think of uh, Jeff Dyer and I think of producers like Steve Lansky, Jeff McDonald, who just, who helped me learn how to do the job. Um, and, and it's so funny because sometimes the things that are the hardest, like feeling, oh, how do I get an interview with so-and-so, especially with us, we were a new network. I'm, I'm contacting teams and NHL teams in the States and they're like, yes, sir, sir who, is, who is Sportsnet? Like we know TSN, we know CBC, but what is this Sportsnet? But I was able to get interviews because by this point, I knew so many people within the hockey world from working at the Hockey Hall of Fame. I mean, I met Gary Bettman like his first couple of weeks on the job when he was hired as commissioner of the NHL in 93, we were, we were opening the hall of fame in the summer of 93. I gave him his first tour of the hockey hall of fame. And I'll remember, especially that year, every NHL team I had sent out an invitation, any NHL team that was coming to Toronto to play the Leafs, we gave them the invitation, like we'd be happy to show your team around the hall. And so I'd be giving teams their first tour of the hockey hall of fame still have players saying oh i remember meeting you for the first time you gave our team a tour of the hall the night before That's so we, funny we were playing the Leafs. so um you know so i did bring a certain set of skills to the job with me but 
others uh, that I was lacking, it was definitely like on the job training. So those were crazy days. But I figured if I survived those first couple of years, then I figured I could survive anything. <laughs> well, if it makes you feel any better, uh, like as, as great as school was, I feel like I owe, you know, most of my training to people on the job as well. Yeah, for that's, sure. That's really how yeah. you do, right? You're just thrown into it and it forces you to learn pretty quickly. Yes. But you know what, like your name did come up as like someone who has been wonderful and kind in a mentorship sort of way on this podcast before, especially with oh. the Carolyn Cameron, who I recently spoke with. So that's, awesome. I was thinking about like back then, like, you know, even to be a woman in a position like that back then was very different from from today. Did you run into any doubters of the male species? <laughs> oh, you know, it's so funny. I'm sure. I'm sure there were. I guess it's. I you know. I it was a different world back then in the respect that without any social media, I didn't have to read horrible things about me on oh. online like everybody now does. Yes. You know what I mean? So. Um, there probably were doubters. Now, as I said, though, I was, I just grew up being comfortable around the rink. I grew up being comfortable around hockey, not only from, you know, my upbringing, but by then, the five years before that, I was, you know, working in hockey through the Hall of Fame. I was working at Maple Leaf Gardens every game night for three years. So in that respect, even though there weren't a ton of women in these roles, although, you know, I give... Teresa Herger, uh, and then Teresa Cruz at TSN, give her credit. Um, Lisa Bowes, you know, there were some women in, in the industry, not many. Um, but I guess I didn't feel it the way that I feel some women do now, just because True. it is such a microscope and everyone has a microphone, their own microphone online to be able to say exactly what they think. And sadly, most people don't think twice of saying what they think. I mean, I think maybe there was a bit more of a decorum back then, just generally when you when you yeah. think of, of the public. Plus, I don't know, I kind of was uh, oblivious. I just thought, put my head down, do my job, and I'll gain respect that way. Um, but again, just lucky enough that I was given the opportunity to be there long enough to really hone whatever skills that I do have now, because I think if I were to look back at tapes from 1998, I'm sure I would be cringing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because like in your bio, it says um, that you were part of like a history making broadcast in 2020, uh, the first all female NHL broadcast crew for um, a game. What was it between the it was Vegas, Vegas Golden Knights. Knights in Calgary? And I'll never forget. Yeah, it was myself, Cassie Campbell, Pascal and Leah Hextall. We were on air, but I mean, most of the production crew, too, were were women. And oh, my God, like that wouldn't have been possible 20 years earlier just because there <laughs> weren't women in those positions to be able to do it. But that was I mean, it just reminded me. Yeah, we've we've come a long way. I still we've got a ways to go but boy have we come a long way that that game could even happen and although that's like a an amazing resume or bio point I think you have probably made history in the sport before 2020 and this broadcast so maybe tell me about something sort of groundbreaking that you were part of early days whether it was in Toronto or you also went to the U.S. for yeah. some of your broadcasting career do you remember anything feeling like you were breaking new ground so funny. Um, 
you know, I don't know if when you're in it, you don't really realize it. I, it's, it's more when people, I guess, ask me about it, or maybe if you do look back at something that you kind of realize, you know, you look around and think, oh, right, I guess that kind of hadn't been done so much um, before at that time. But I guess I, I, I mean, one thing, and it's one of the funniest stories um, that I tell too, just to remind people, you know, young people who are wanting to get into this industry, you just never know when opportunity might come your way and, and to almost though always be prepared for it, even though you're probably not ready for it. Part of my job at work, working at the Hockey Hall of Fame was I would sometimes um, travel with the Stanley Cup. You know, usually it was Phil Pritchard and Craig Campbell, who are still there today and obviously <laughs> are, are the ones that everyone knows as the keepers of the cup. But they would sometimes say, oh, Chris, you know, the cup has to go here. Do you mind taking it? And so those were always fun. So I remember in 95 taking the cup uh, to ESPN. They were the Do right you put team. a seatbelt on it in the car? You know, it's, it comes in its <laughs> own trunk. Uh, which, which, a quick story on that front, I had to take it to New York where after the Rangers had won it and Marc Messier wanted the cup for a charity event that he was doing. So of course the Rangers, you know, I fly with it and it comes in this trunk that, you know, you roll and, but I come out and they've sent this beautiful stretch limousine for me. And I'm like, well, that's lovely, but like the trunk won't fit into like the limousine part, it's like, oh my gosh. So we actually had to take it out of the trunk and put it in the back seat of the limo. And I'm scared to death thinking if we're stopped and people see what that is, you know, so I'm sort of hanging on to it very tightly. But back to just opportunities and you never know where, where you'll find them. That same year, I was um, asked to take the cup to Bristol, Connecticut, to the ESPN headquarters. They, they just wanted to have the cup on display during the playoffs that year. And so that day, they also asked, you know, staff are all welcome to come, get their picture taken with the cup. So I'm there just literally standing beside the cup to have my eye on it, but also people start asking you questions. So I'm telling them about the history of the cup, my own experiences with the cup, because I've been lucky enough to be the around the cup a few times before then when my brother had won the Stanley Cup. So before you know it, they're getting ready for showtime and the coordinating producer of ESPN goes, wow, like that was really cool. You've got some neat stories about what it's like being around the cup. We want you to be on during intermission with Steve Levy talking about the Stanley Cup. So the next thing I know, I'm being whisked into the makeup room about to make my ESPN debut. And I'm again, though, like, uh, what am I doing here? I should have been scared to death, but you don't have time to really think about it. You just know you're making your broadcast debut on ESPN, seen by however many people. And um, the funny story is, you know, years later, that's what led to me working games for ESPN because I'd always kept in touch with the coordinating producer that day. And thinking one of these days, I'm actually going to work with you. Smart. So you just, you never know where these opportunities will come. And even though you may be scared to death inside, just <laughs> don't ever let them see it, right? Never let them see you sweat. Oh, that's so funny. So you hopefully got to keep that for a demo. Like you got the video oh, from yeah. it. I still have. I got some screen grabs that I post from time to time. Usually when I, actually, because when ESPN 
just got the rights again in the States, right? Last year after NBC's deal went up, ESPN and TNT combined have the NHL rights in the States. And Steve Levy, who had done the interview with me, you know, <laughs> 30 odd years ago, uh, is back doing ESPN hockey. So I did do a little screen grab of he and I and the cup on the set at ESPN all those years ago. So kind of a full circle moment. That was pretty fun. I want to ask you about some of your favorite interviews. You probably have stories for days, but give me like an interview that stood out as like you really getting to like the human behind the hockey player that we all see, all see, or maybe, or maybe it's a Gary Bettman. I don't know. Well, you know, and there are some that are, are just a blast to do. And then there are some that are, you know, heartbreaking. And those are often the ones that stick with you the most. Yeah. I would say one in particular, Luke, Luke Richardson, Luke and his wife, Stephanie, um, when their daughter, Darren, uh, died by suicide a number of years ago um, when he was with the Ottawa Senators. And I'd known them both. Um, Luke had been a teammate of my brother Craig's with the Edmonton Oilers. And, you know, anytime anyone in the hockey family, you know, uh, has a loss like that, uh, your heart goes out to them. And then you also think, well, what can, what can I do to help? And it was, I feel for, for the Richardsons, it was because they wanted to start a foundation, do it for Darren, which is still doing wonderful work in the mental health field, um, that they decided to open up and tell their story. So those are the ones, I mean, so many of my favorite stories actually are with hockey people, but we're not even talking about hockey. You know, yeah, we're, we're talking sure. about something very human. Um, I think of Bobby Ryan. I mean, the Bobby Ryan story, um, is still, and you can't even begin if you don't know the story to know how his father was in jail and they changed their last name and were on the run. And I mean, it's just one of those, like, it's like a movie, but then when, when he chose to sort of share his story, it, it's one of those. Uh, Nate Thompson a few years ago with the Montreal Canadiens when he opened up about his sobriety. I mean, the things about those stories is you know that somebody listening to that is going to take something from that and go, oh, if that person is dealing with that and I idolize them, you know, it makes, it, it gives some people hope for whatever, because we all have, we all have something we're dealing with. Um, if it gives them hope that they can see a light at the end of the tunnel. So those are the ones that kind of like stick to your heart. Um, but yeah, then there's, there's fun ones. I mean, Wayne Gretzky was, was always <laughs> one of the most fun. And to me, one of the most fun ones was, when they had the outdoor game in Edmonton. So was it a winter classic? A winter classic. It was a heritage yeah. classic. It was before it became oh, a big okay. annual thing. But it was really the first one. And the fun part was, frankly, the alumni game that year was almost more interesting than the regular season game um, because <laughs> it did bring... Mark Messier was still playing for the Rangers, but he came back to play with the alumni. It was Wayne Gretzky. It was my brother, Craig. And so hopping on the ice after the morning skate and getting to interview Wayne and my brother together on what was the coldest day of the year. I've never been more cold than I was that, that winter classic. Those were fun. But on the other side of things, um, again, talking about what you need to do when things change. We were talking about the big picture during a pandemic. Well, we've had a couple of lockouts during my career too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then you start thinking, all right, well, if there's no hockey being played, so I was lucky enough to have some connections in Hollywood and started doing segments that we called that Showtime with Chris Simpson. And there, 
it just during that time, there were a lot of sports movies that came out. So I got connected with um, a guy out in LA who would get me on to the sports movie junkets. So I got to interview, well, for Moneyball, I got to interview Brad Pitt. That was pretty cool. Come on. Yeah, Brad Pitt. And I love Billy, that movie. And Billy Bean together, right? Brad was playing Billy. So I was out in Oakland interviewing them. Uh, got to interview George Clooney for a football movie, Leatherheads. He and John Krasinski together got to interview him. Uh, I haven't seen the that one. The Longest Yard got to interview Burt Reynolds and Adam Sandler and Chris Rock. Like, that's the other side of just being <laughs> able to find, like, again, you find yourself in these scenarios going, how did I get here? And it was really just because needed to come up with stories to tell when there were no hockey stories to tell. So it does sort of force us to become creative when things don't exactly go the way that you plan. But sometimes that's the most fun. Wow. I'm still digesting the Brad Pitt, but <laughs> it's so fun. That's such a good movie. I love that movie. I do too. Well. I know. It's a great movie on top uh, of it. It's Sarah Burke here, the host of the Women in Media podcast and the founder of the Women in Media Network. Yep, now there's an entire network. I've been working really hard to get things off the ground. And what would I do without coffee? I can barely function without it. But I feel much better about putting a coffee that's full of superfoods in my body. I've been loving the Focus Fuel Instant Mushroom Coffee from Organic Traditions. And of course, all the ingredients are organic. It's packed with Lion's Mane Mushroom to support memory, focus, and cognitive function, adaptogens to nourish your brain, and MCT powder to boost your energy and improve mental clarity. And before you make that face, no, it doesn't taste like mushrooms. It tastes like coffee. Actually, better than most. There are hints of cinnamon and vanilla, and it is absolutely delicious. Did I mention it also just won Best New Mushroom Enhanced Beverage in a 2024 Brand Spark survey? Want to try the Focus Fuel Mushroom Coffee yourself? Head to OrganicTraditions.com and use the promo code WOMENINMEDIA20 for 20% off at checkout. And by the way, that applies for the entire site, not just the coffee. You're welcome. Just add water and get at it. Hello, I'm Wendy Mesley. There you are. A lot of people have wondered what happened to you. I could say the same about you, Maureen Holloway. Well, here we are. A few years after we left our previous jobs, we've been busy. We have a podcast. I know, you're thinking who doesn't, but ours is really good. It's called Women of Ill Repute. We don't just talk to women, though. Just the most interesting people you'd ever want to meet. Artists, musicians, comedians, doctors. Activists, convicts, writers, sex workers. Drop some names. Jan Arden, Pamela Anderson, Bruce Coburn. Samantha Irby, Louise Penny, Marilyn Dennis, Colin Mockery. We laugh, we cry, sometimes we argue. Come and find us. Our website is womenofillrepute.com. Or try Apple, Spotify, and all the podcast places. So now you know what happened to us, Women of Ill Repute. Where I wanted to go with this next is um, there's like a boundary for people in the public eye, right? And you see this as you're interviewing people in the hockey spotlight, but you also are in a media spotlight. Have you ever shared something really personal for like a bigger cause than just you, where you sort of stepped outside of that boundary? Kind of talking about, I guess, awkward conversations that fortunately we're having more of in sports. Yes. Um, and I think, of, you know, when hockey came back in the bubble, 
so that would have been late summer of 2020 where they just had the two bubbles. They had games in Toronto, games in Edmonton. So I was doing some of the games in Toronto now as ringside reporter, but I was on the 300 level um, <laughs> in an empty building, right? No crowds, no one around. Even the camera on me was, was like robotic. There wasn't a camera person there. Um, so it was, it was weird, but it was just also really great to have hockey back. But if you'll also recall, I mean, that was the summer of George Floyd. That was, you know, social justice was becoming, in the sports world in particular, you know, you saw the NBA players speaking out so strongly. Just with every horrific thing that happened, I think in part because everyone was home, everyone was watching TV, like you had nothing else going on. And, and it just became the summer of change and the summer of the ugly side of our world, um, all of us being forced to see it. And I'll never forget the day where, um, because of the whole George Floyd situation, the NBA basically canceled their game. So you've got you've got leagues playing, like telling their fans, nope, we're we're taking a break. That we we can't just pretend that sports is fine. We can keep going. And so we're sitting there thinking our game, like, well, the NHL has to follow suit. The game has course, to be suspended. Yeah. Like, how can we? Like, the world is blowing up. How can we just pretend everything's yep. fine? So we were kind of dumbfounded when, you know, the NHL didn't cancel anything. We, we had to do the game. And I just remember that day and I was sitting with uh, Chris Johnston, who was working with us at the time and just felt sick. We felt complicit. Like, how are we supposed to just talk about a game of hockey when there are just so many bigger things going on in the world right now? And, and, you know, on social media, people are screaming at the NHL saying, how can you be so tone deaf? Like, you can't, you, yeah. you've got to suspend play too. So what I remember, though, was the first intermission and, you know, my producer's in my ear. And this is normally where CJ and I would be breaking down the first period. We both sort of looked at each other and said, we, we can't. So... I was there and I'm like, well, Chris, this is normally where we break down what happened in the first period. But given, I think you and I feel this is a game that shouldn't even be played and I actually feel sick to my stomach that it's being played, um, I don't think we can do that. And so our discussion, and honestly, you know, we didn't really get permission to talk about it, um, but I remember thinking, I don't know if this is the last game I'm going to do for Sportsnet and the National Hockey wow. League, but how can you just pretend that everything is fine? You have so, to listen to your, your gut. You have yeah. to go with your gut, right? And so I remember <laughs> getting a call the next day from our president at the time. And again, you don't know what, but fortunately to say, just want you to know, proud of what you said, proud of what you did, you know, we have your back and we are not going to stifle you. And, and trust me, I know that that doesn't always happen that way. And I don't always like to use it as like, I'm going to get on my soapbox because this is something that I'm personally, you know, very passionate about. But in that moment, you just had to, and whatever consequences came, I think we were ready. You were up for it. Yeah. 
So that's just mm. one. And I mean, obviously, that's been the start of so much happening in our sport. And, you know, the Hockey Diversity Alliance being, well, Matt Dumba, shortly after that, his impassioned speech that he gave before an NHL game will stick with me. The work that the HDA is doing, the work that the Carnegie Initiative is doing, the fact that Herb Carnegie was just inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. I mean, we are seeing change in sport in general and a hockey I feel has lagged behind, but we are making headway. And those are the, those are the things I'm probably you know, most proud of when I look at the diversity that has come, you know, in all ways. And to the point where I'm looking forward to my interview with Mike Greer uh, next week as the first black GM in the NHL. I mean, again, ridiculous that it's taken this long, but Glad that it has. Glad to see more women, not only in sports broadcasting, but in the head offices in management with NHL teams. So, yeah, we're we're getting there slowly, but surely we're getting there. Thinking about sort of the up and coming generations um, in broadcasting, it's funny how many parallels there are from what you're saying you're seeing in the league or on the ice um, with representation to broadcasting as a career behind the mic, behind the scenes. I imagine that you're asked to speak to schools, uh, classes, people coming up in in journalism or broadcasting. Um, What are the, are there any interesting questions that you're being asked that you're sort of like, huh, I've never thought about that before because it's such a different generation. I often find it's the other way is that I want to ask them, keep in mind when I started in 92, there was no social media, um, podcasts like what's a podcast you know, yeah, you know yeah. like, there are so many platforms now like i want to find like how do you watch a hockey game do you watch our game start to finish and a lot of young people well no no i just go to the highlights on youtube oh okay what youtube channels do you like to watch what podcasts do you like to listen to um and i always ask them because i figure they're going to know before me what are the next platforms Again, Twitter didn't exist. Instagram didn't exist. Facebook. Twitter's about to not exist again. Exactly. Yeah. So I'd be asking the same. It's like, okay, what if Twitter continues to go the way that it seems to be going and blows up? Where are we all going to go to next? So where they might be asking me, you know, what what advice do you have? How do I get my foot in the door? I'm I'm saying to many of them, well, the way we all got our foot in the door, even though there wasn't as we said, no one path. There are very different ways of, of getting into the industry, but those ways continue to be different. So advice even from a decade of, ago of, well, you start in a, you know, a local news channel and you do sports there. Yeah. Well, there, there aren't many local news channels anymore to even get your start there to, to work. You could start out. on TikTok at this point. And that's the thing. Like to me, I would just say there are so many opportunities for people because you can be your own platform, right? You know, I look at Steve Dangle and the work he's doing with us. He created what he created out of his basement and, and look at him now. And the fantastic, be it podcasts or what, whatever platform and whatever platforms are still to come. You're not going to be someone who like waits there and sends out like I did cobbles together a VHS tape some things that I've done and have to send this tape in the mail to a company to say, hey, look at what I can do for you. Let me know if you have a role to fill. Uh, to me, you can get, you can find your own following. And 
if you're creative and you can you know work hard at it and create content all of these platforms are looking for content so be your own producer be your own content creator like in that respect you you have better luck of being seen than we ever did because you you'd have to at least get your foot in the door to get that interview whereas to me now I just love the creativity that you see from the TikTokers and, and as I said, whatever platform is to come next. So I, yes, I do often have young people reach out to me and I'm always happy to, to share my insight, to share my story. But I also make it very clear, my path is not the path you're going to follow because it kind of doesn't exist anymore. And I'm always fascinated by what they're doing and what their perception of you know, how, not just how I want to get into the industry. What is the industry now? <laughs> Such a good question. Right? It's like, I don't know. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know where very it's good going. Question. And, but that's, that's also exciting because I, I do yeah. feel in certain ways there are more opportunities out there because you don't have to have a big corporation decide what's good content or not. You can, you can, you can, come up with it and you're always going to find, you know, a community that, that wants to share that. Mm -hmm. Follow-up question on, on the next generation. What's a great piece of advice or something you learned from someone up and coming? Hmm. Oh, well, I would say just to, you know, to be able to diversify and I look at Carolyn Cameron is, is a great example. And she is such a powerhouse at our place. I am lucky I feel we are lucky as a hockey department that she's with us, but you know, she started as an anchor, you know, doing everything and her genuine love for tennis has gotten her over to the tennis side. And then lo and behold, a couple of years ago, it's like, ah, let's steal her from Sportsnet Central from the news side and have her do hockey. And I mean, I just marvel at everything that she's able to do. Like you can just throw her into anything and she's like, yep, yeah, what do you need? Yep, yeah, I can do it. And and I give her such credit. I remember when I was starting out at Sportsnet, in 98, we had two reporters. Um, <laughs> it, and so I would be thrown to, I remember going out to Woodbine and having to cover uh, a horse race. And it was the first time I'd ever been to a horse race. And I always felt <laughs> yeah. like, oh, you, like, especially as a woman, you need to know your stuff inside and out. Or, you know, someone's going to say, oh, she doesn't know what she's talking about. So that that's what would make me nervous. And I felt very fortunate to then for them to decide that, you know what, hockey is where you're best utilized anyway. So you're going to be and all of a sudden I'm like, whoo, OK, I, I can do hockey and do my thing. But, you know, I look at someone like Carolyn and just nothing ever seems to ruffle her. And she's worn so many hats and and everywhere along the way. She's just like, yep, what do you need me to do? So the confidence, and I mean, she might say, oh, but I'm, I'm not super confident when I'm doing it. But you don't know it because she's just so smooth, no matter what you throw at her, um, that I'm very impressed by her. And that's where I know like the future of Sportsnet is bright when someone like her is at the helm. I'm very curious about your time in the U.S., Oh, well, the beauty of it, I was I was working at Sportsnet as well as, so did um, the years, because uh, started at Sportsnet in 98, so it was maybe coming out of the lockout in the early 2000s, 2002. Anyway, 
when ABC and ESPN had the rights, I would do just some games for them, rinkside reporting. So it was it was here and there, and the flights deal, in and out. Uh, yeah, so like I never had to move anywhere with any of them. Okay. Well, that's the beauty of it. When you're doing games, you just fly. Like it doesn't matter where you live, you fly to where the games are. True. So, um, and then out of that, um, after the after the lockout, uh, where ABC and ESPN, I had done some games for them, ringside reporting, and then a cable network that doesn't exist anymore called Versus got the NHL rights coming out of that lockout. And some of the people that I'd worked with at ESPN were now working at Versus. So same thing, they came to me saying, we, we would like you to do ringside for some of our games. Luckily, Sportsnet saw that as an advantage because if Versus was flying me down to New York to do a Rangers game one week, Sportsnet would say, great, when she's there, we'll keep her for an extra day. She'll get an interview with one of the New York Rangers and come back and give us content. So... I look at those years as being the busiest I've ever had because you're basically working for two networks um, on the road. Like one game a week means three days a week on the road um, in addition to whatever, whatever else Sportsnet needed me to do. So they were the craziest of times, but the most fun and the way that you do build the relationships that you do with the people that you're interviewing. I mean, even if you're doing ringside reporting for a game and are doing just a 30 to 40 second intermission interview with a player, you might find out something about that player that you want to then take back with a, you know, pitch them on a real story. Like, can I now come to your home and do a real sit down with you and your family talking about whatever issue it was that, you know, you uncover from being there. So I think so much of, um, Really, the relationships that I've built throughout the hockey world yeah. has come from working both sides of the border with numerous networks um, and just doing it long enough that people, you know, <laughs> you know, you've been doing this long enough when I'm now interviewing the sons of hockey players that I used to, you know, I used to interview Ty Domi. Now I interview Max Domi. <laughs> <laughs> and all the guys that I started out interviewing are now the coaches and the GMs and, and management of teams. But it's all it, it's all great because it's still like, they know who I am. They know they can trust me if I'm coming to do a story. They Even if it's a story that, you know, is maybe an uncomfortable conversation. I think by now people know my reputation is not gotcha journalism. My reputation is to make you feel comfortable enough that we're having a conversation and that people are gonna learn something about you or your organization, um, you know, in a comfortable way, even if it's an uncomfortable topic. Okay, so the age piece. Um, this is a, a pretty hot topic in the media right now. <laughs> you walked me right into this. I'm 35 and I'm like, oh, do I expire next year? Like, that's how it feels, you know? Yep. How have you sort of handled your age? I mean, there's no doubt about it that like you've got a great reputation you are well presented all of that but I'm sure there has been moments over your career where you've been challenged on those things well yeah and I mean I'm I am happy to say I'm 58 years old and hell yeah and been doing this for so long and certainly still hope to be doing it for at least a while longer um put it this way I'm pretty darn sure that I will not have the longevity of some of my male colleagues who worked into their 80s it's just not the way it works. 
Um, but I'm going to do everything I can to make it difficult for my network to say, mm, you know, we don't really need you anymore. I will give, I will give my network credit in that there's no question. They, they could replace me at any time with someone half my age, at, I'm sure half my salary. They absolutely could. And that person could do this job. They maybe couldn't do it the same way that I do. They maybe couldn't land certain interviews that I can land because of people trusting me and knowing me and, and that kind of thing. So I've, as I said, up to this point, been fortunate enough that um, I feel they, they understand the value that I bring to the network. But hey, don't get me wrong. I mean, Lisa Laflamme is one of my dearest and closest friends and to see what happened with her this summer, um, I am very well aware that that could happen to me at any time. Now, one would think that given the outcry that came after Lisa being let go, uh, perhaps that will make, net make networks think twice about making decisions like that. Um, but hey, it's the reality of our industry and um, all I want to do is make it difficult for them to say, yeah, you know what, we don't really need someone like her here anymore. Just, I, I, I always just think, put your head down, do your job the best that you can, bring value to your network and make it difficult for them to think, oh, what would we do without her? Or, you know, how could we land that interview without her? But yeah, it is the reality of life in general, but certainly our <laughs> industry in particular, that age, age is a factor, but. Mm -hmm. I got to flip this back on you. When you said, oh, I've, I've felt fortunate. You've said like, you're grateful, right? You, you're always using these terms and many women in this industry are. Yeah. I think it's the networks that are fortunate and should be grateful. So sorry, just had to say that <laughs> to, well, to wrap us up that. here. <laughs> I do appreciate that. I, I do hope they feel that way too. Oh, come on. They do. Um, so I end the podcast um, with like a little nomination process. Um, who you would love to hear more about their story in a, a format like this mm -hmm. conversation about their career. This is basically a profile podcast um so yeah who are you thinking well you know uh, i i know you've already talked to a lot of women that i admire in media so you've already got um, a great roster i know in your archives <laughs> but when i look ahead so a couple of things come to mind actually just because we just talked about her obviously lisa laflamme um she's an incredible human being and has had an incredible career up until this point and i know will continue to the exciting thing is going to be seeing where she is going to land next. So yes. she'd be a great one for you to get to know. But, you know, I, I think back to, we also talked about that all-female broadcast that we did of that NHL game in Calgary back in 2020 on International Women's Day. And the two women I worked uh, with on that game that day, Cassie Campbell-Pascal, still a, a colleague of mine at Sportsnet, and Leah Hextall, who has gone on, and I mean, I give her so much credit for play-by-play. -play. Like, it's enough to you know, be a reporter, be an analyst, but play by play in my mind, like for anybody, Whole other beast. hardest job. It is such a completely different beast. And for her to have spent so many nights going to junior hockey games, you know, in, in Manitoba and calling the game into her phone to listen back to it and to like 
hone her craft basically on her own. And now to see the great things that she's doing, to me, Leah Hextall and Cassie Campbell Pascal would be two other ladies that I would highly recommend you speak to. Okay. Well, thank you so much for those names. Thank you so much for the time. And uh, if anyone's missed an interview that they want to check out, uh, where's the best place to head to find all of your, all of your content? All of my content. Speaking of all the different platforms. Yes. <laughs> um, Sportsnet will tweet out any of the big pictures that I do. I'll retweet them on my socials at SN Chris Simpson, our U- Sportsnet YouTube channel, our, our website, sportsnet.ca, all of the platforms you, you can find uh, my stuff there. We'll make sure that the links are in the episode notes for you. I, I realized that we just got to make it easy sometimes. Exactly. Make it foolproof. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was so nice to speak to you. Sarah, it was lovely to meet you and uh, appreciate the time that we spent. I've put the Mike Greer interview directly in the episode notes and in the body of uh, the page on my website. Womeninmedia.ca is where you can find all the previous episodes. If you think of a guest that you would like to hear more about who has not been on this podcast yet, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening and back with a new episode for you in two weeks. I'm Debbie Travis. And I'm Tommy Smythe. And this is Trust Me, I'm a Decorator. We're now podcasters. And why did we call it that? Well, you know us as decorators, but we've got lots more to share. We want to talk about travel and relationships. We're going to have amazing guests on. Guests who inspire us for sure. We'll probably talk about design too. And of course, Tommy, don't forget about food. Oh my gosh, how did I forget about food? So please follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or as they say, wherever you get your podcast. And we'll pop right up when we have a new episode. Where's us luck? This podcast is distributed by the Women in Media Podcast Network. Find out more at womeninmedia.network.